So as usual this evening, this is a participatory Dharma talk, so that um, as I offer these uh, truths to you, the Buddha's truth, the Dharma, to you, uh, for you to be interactive silently in your own way of understanding and taking it in and seeing if there are ways that things are similar for you or even different and unique in your own way. So this evening I'd like to speak about the ecology of compassion. The ecology of compassion. And this means the interrelationship between uh, the outer world and our inner world. So how are we doing that in our lives? It's said that after the Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in India, 2,600 years ago, when he profoundly opened to and understood, realized the liberating knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the cause, the possibility for its end, and the path of practice that leads to that end, the end of suffering. It's said that even with this rare and precious understanding, he was reluctant to offer this understanding to the world around him. He said there might be listeners who would listen but only kind of apply cognitive understanding, conceptualization, theoretical conceptualization of it, and not actually practice. And so he was reluctant to offer the teachings around him because his thought was, his understanding was, unless people actually practiced, they wouldn't really realize the Four Noble Truths. So here we are practicing today and these days and um, we're realizing for ourselves, we're understanding what the Buddha's teachings, the Dharma, the universal understanding of truth is for ourselves. During that time when he was reluctant to offer the Dharma, to offer his understanding, it said that a celestial being uh, arrived and reminded him that there are beings with but little dust in their eyes. That means beings who could hear the teachings, apply them to their daily lives, train in meditation, and understand experientially what these teachings meant in their lives as they lived every day and in their ever-deepening understanding that uh, was a, a, a very much a sacred inner world that we come to change our views about life from there. So, as the story goes, with that reminder, compassion arose in his heart, and it was a very strong and natural inclination for him to offer the teachings, to give the teachings. So he decided to share that liberating knowledge at that time. So I often remember this story about the celestial being coming and reminding the Buddha and really 
understanding that those precious teachings are coming to us from 2,600 years ago, just about that time period, on this wave, on this current, on this river of compassion. So we're receiving these teachings from that heartfelt place. And that's the current that we're riding on now. But we do we know how to use that very same current, that very same energy, that uh, opening of our hearts to understand what's going on for us in this world and how we can use that understanding, that liberating knowledge to open to the Four Noble Truths and to really understand them deeply for our own liberation. The proximate cause for compassion to arise is opening to suffering. And that's exactly what happened in the Buddha's case. And here we are in our lives today. We come to the practice when we ask uh, people around us and when people have asked me, what brought you to the practice? I would say suffering did. You know, I was really looking for a way to understand my life and to um, open to what I needed to open to, the strength that I needed to open to. So a long time ago, I was a single parent of three children, and I arrived uh, from the Philippines with three children, and I was in my mid-twenties, and my three children were like six, five, and three, something like that, six years old, five years old, three years old. And um, I never, uh, I I was um, born into a very poor family. I was raised in San Francisco in the projects near the Cow Palace. And we um, finally got out of there uh, and moved to East Palo Alto. And so that was a a wonderful part of my life. And um, then I married into a very prominent, wealthy family. That's a long story. I won't go into that. But it was like something like um, my mother's wish and the father of the man I was marrying. It was sort of like their idea. Um, It's hard to explain, but that's what happened. (laughs) And it was like uh, I was about 17 when I was betrothed and uh, I kind of wanted to get out of the house. So uh, I moved to the Philippines and had children very early in my life. And um, I was born there, came to America when I was two years old. And then, you know, my life from there grew up in the Bay Area and then moved back to the Philippines. During martial law, that family I was married into was a political family. And... um, I couldn't leave uh, the Philippines because my children were Philippine citizens and um, I had to escape. That's a different story. It took a lot of faith and I escaped with my three children. I left my husband there. That time it, it wasn't a good marriage. 
So when I came to America as a single parent of three children, really not having taken care of them very much myself because I had a very, I was married into a very wealthy family. It was really, really difficult for me. You know, I come from a working class family, so I knew how to handle myself in life, and I, so I took over. But having to fend for our lives without much uh, to start with was a really difficult thing. And so I came up across the Dharma at that time. And how that happened was that um, I was going down Highway 1, and um, around about in Santa Cruz, there is this, the University of California there, and there was a sign that said um, it was a spiritual fair. And so I, I entered, I went inside with my three children, and they were all just screaming and hollering, you know, and wanting me to get something to eat and do something fun. But I wanted to see what this was all about. So um, I went in with my children who were just, you know, pulling on my skirt and uh, we went to this cadaverous-like gymnasium. There was, a, you know, during that time it was in the 70s and there was a lot of incense burning and, you know, flutes and um, uh, things like that. You know, I was in that era and... Um, it was really wonderful for me, and I loved all of it. You know, I loved the the sounds and the smells and the drumming, and I lo- I was part of that too. But there was a sign in the right hand corner that said "Silent Retreat," and I didn't care about anything else. I went straight to that silent retreat, and I signed up for my first retreat there. And that was because I had all these children clamoring and and it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, I really need to know how to do something with my life. So um, I was looking for something and I found it, or it found me. And that's how I started out in the Dharma. And so, and I did that a lot because I knew I was, I was suffering. And when people ask me, how did you come to this practice? I say, because of suffering. And I really wanted to find the way that I could live my life not, not in that way, not in that heavy way. So it's said that um, this is one of the most beautiful feelings a person can experience, this compassion, in order to face this suffering in one's life when we can have that really deep, genuine caring for ourselves and others and really live in that caring part more instead of that suffering part. So I had to learn through all the lessons of my life that yes, I had the kind of heart that could face what I needed to face. I did have a lot of inner strength which was tested many times. But I didn't want to live in that place where there was so much vulnerability, I didn't know what to do with it. I wanted to see if I could step back and live in that place of that strength of compassion, which I started to learn about 
during that time. So it was very, thought it was very good for um, me to learn about compassion just about the time that I was really learning about suffering and having to open to it. And I learned about compassion just by having a teacher that um, exemplified that. Because when I went to my first retreat, uh, I came in late because I was, um, you know, had to take care of a lot of things at home uh, for my children. I was a single parent then, uh, um, still. <laughs> and I went into the retreat and I, um, I brought um, the things that I was going to use and I was expecting to get a room and a bed, but there was nothing left. So they told me, follow me, one of the guides said, and I'll show you where you're sleeping. And so um, he gave me a mat to put down in a hallway, and that was my place in that retreat. And so I was putting my things down in that hallway, tired, really tired from trying to get things together. And um, along came an energy. I was really looking forward to meeting him. You know, I heard a lot about him. It was my very first retreat. And here he comes, this um, beautiful uh, Indian man with a shiny bald head and (laughs) beautiful shining skin and white robes. And he came towards me and the first thing that he said, you know, I thought he would give me a blessing and I would be healed right away from my, I was kind of naive like that. But the first thing he said was, this is where you're sleeping, you know, in his beautiful language, uh, English. Um, He was Indians, but in his English way, he said, this is where you're sleeping. And I said, yes, it's okay with me. You know, I, I was in my 20s. And he said, oh, you mustn't sleep there. You need good rest when you're practicing. So uh, he said, you know, I'm used to sleeping on the floor and I can sleep someplace else. So you take my room. Because I didn't have a room. You know, I was the last one there. You take my room and uh, I will take another place. And so... You know, the first thing that he showed was compassion. It was so down to earth. And he didn't have any airs. He was just who he was, you know. And um, he really cared. He really cared about me, just like he was my family, not like he was some highfalutin teacher. So that's the first thing that I got, you know, when I entered the practice. And it really made a big uh, impression on me that, you know, that, that's the kind of way I'd like to grow in the Dharma, the way he exemplified. So, you know, compassion is this um, beautiful way of being and of feeling when we don't close down to what's happening hurtfully in ourselves, the wounds that we uncover in our practice are the ways that we see the wounded world around us, where we can often blame, strike out at, and not really tune in to our compassion for that. So it's such a beautiful um, experience that we can have, and even more beautiful is when we can turn that compassion towards ourselves. And luckily I had enough compassion for myself 
to do something like find a way that I could face life in, in a more wise, balanced way. So this compassion is a feeling you might know in yourself. This is a, a way that you can check in with yourselves. It's a feeling of what we use in, in different modalities, different um, philosophical ways of experiencing life, um, is grace. It, it's a moment of grace when we can feel ourselves just open to how things are. It's a feeling when we have this, we can have a gentleness instead of a, you know, a pushback or an aversion or like, I don't like this, I'm going away. But it's a feeling that we can really face it with and, and feel the kind of grace that allows us to do that. It's a, it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of courage to have that compassion. I knew that I, you know, looking back, I knew that I had that for that strength, the grace, the gentleness, that courage to know that I had to get my kids out of the Philippines. Which, you know, that was hard too, but there were many steps and I was able to leave. So this, these tender parts of ourselves can face these emotional crises these tsunami, tsunamis of our lives, these storms of our lives, in a way that doesn't have to use the old um, ways that we normally face life, you know, just like getting too busy and not taking care of the wounds that we have within and not taking care of the worldly wounds in the proper way, in a way that really makes a difference. So in some mysterious way, this grace, this beautiful emotion makes us feel complete. Because there is something missing a lot when we feel that there's a lot of difficulty in ourselves and in the world and we're just confused and we don't know how to do it. We just don't know how to, how to be tender, how to let ourselves open to it so that we can find something within that works um, and is really effective in the world. So we're, we're able to face our broken hearts and our losses and our vulnerabilities and really just take care of ourselves and others in the world and, and open to that considerable distress that is not only in our hearts but we see in the world. In an old journal I found a passage where I'd been um, writing about a quiet desperation that I had in my life. And this is when um, I was still a single parent. My children were older now. And I'd been acutely aware since my early years that I wanted to understand the meaning of life. And I think maybe in some ways this is what we're all here for. We may not say it directly or so clearly to ourselves, but we're really trying to find the meaning of life and wh what are we here for? What's our purpose? And that's exactly what I asked Manindraji. He was there at the time when I asked him, when I was uh, figuring that this was a big part of my existence was to find the meaning of life. So I asked him, what's the meaning of my life anyway? 
what's the reason for my being born? And basically he answered me very clearly, straightforwardly, and he said, the meaning of your life is to develop compassion and wisdom. And it was just straightforward like that. And I thought, okay, that's easy enough. You know, there's not this 12 interdependent links and all these things, you know, that I started to learn about later. And so I, that was sort of like the basis, and that continues to be the basis of my understanding of the Dharma. To develop in equal measure this compassion, uh, not just for all of life out there that we think is really most of where we need to put our compassion, but right here to ourselves, to bring it right here to our own lives to our own inner terrain. So this quality, this beautiful quality, is talked about as being equally important um, as wisdom is in the Dharma. So it's said uh, that there are different lineages in the Dharma that are uh, talk about the two great wings of the Dharma, the two great wings. And those two great wings are wisdom and compassion. And we see and understand, and it's said from time immemorial, that each one strengthens and serves the other one to become more activated, to become more strong, so that this great bird of the Dharma can fly free in liberation. So wisdom is needed Compassion is needed. Actually, compassion is so important because it helps us open to these bare truths of wisdom. So I'd like to read uh, from a quote uh, of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Now a few words on the combination of wisdom and compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, These are considered the two most important aspects of practice. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly, a very compassionate person without wisdom is only a likable fool. And a person with wisdom with no compassion is like a lonely hermit in an ivory tower. Both will reinforce each other. Once we realize how interrelated it all is, and we all are, it is hard not to feel some level of compassion. And once we feel compassion to others, we realize our interrelatedness. And compassion for ourselves can also grow. So the Dharma, or sometimes I use the word Dhamma in the uh, Theravada tradition, means the truth of how it is, the true nature of reality. And this is what we're all opening to understand more and more deeply and more clearly here. But that isn't easy. The natural unfolding to these universal truths are not easy to open to, they're not easy to accept, and we we really need the help to be able to open to all of that and to open slowly in our own way, in our own um, natural timing. 
maybe I told this story in, in my last talk about um, someone that I was um, a partner to a long, long time ago. And I really wanted to sort of open him up to the Dharma, to attend retreats with me and um, sit with me and all that. And uh, he said something I'll never forget. He's passed away already. And said, um, don't pull my petals open. I'm not ready yet. And that really meant a lot to me to look at myself too and to look at how I was doing that, perhaps with others around me. That I really just needed to open in the unique, natural way it is for me as it was for that person as it was for all beings. So I know we, we quote a lot of um, people who are famous here, but I wanted to uh, read you a quote from Celestial Seasonings Tea Box. Uh, this has been a really important one. You, some of you know my talks and you've heard this a lot, but This is really important. I remember this often. Flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven, but unfold in its own perfect timing to reveal its true wonder and beauty. And so this is the way we're holding all of you you know this with this not just with the understanding of wisdom but with our hearts of compassion to to just be able to bear witness to everything that you're opening to that we're opening to sometimes almost simultaneously and uh it's it's a wonderful uh turning of the wheel you know that's right here in this room So in these rare conditions of more quiet and stillness in the outer environment, we have this relative solitude, less distraction, and the inner environment settles down like a still forest pool. And with the various meditational skill sets we learn here, our minds and hearts become at times like this still forest pool, and it's sort of... um, we're able to look inside that pool, so to say, and able to bear witness to what's going on beneath those levels of things that, you know, busyness of our lives, the distractions that we all have in our lives, and the currents that flow through our lives that kind of keep pushing and pull us, pulling us. And we're able to see below that Of course, there are a lot of beautiful experiences that we open to, but there's also the fact of the vulnerability of life we open to within ourselves. So in our process here, we're already well aware of the fact of the vulnerability of conditions all around us. At every level, everything's in constant flux. And this is hard to open to, you know. And at one time we have, um, at certain times in our of our lives, we have a certain way that politics is presented, and that we live in this political world. And at other times, 
a different way that we might feel more at ease with, environmental changes that are going on economically, the world is quite in flux around us, and socially each one of us are, is feeling the social pressures of life that are always changing. There's a lot of unrest, and, and um, I want to put a, a word about the unjust injustice in the world also, because we're not trying to leave that out. We're just trying to help you, you know, um, like my kids say to me, cool your jets, Mom. <laughs> cool our jets a little bit to settle around things and not let all of that kind of stir us up so we can see more deeply. We can, we, we're able to come back and see those things in a, in a clearer way. So there is injustice around racism and sexism and ageism, the gender bias of all kinds, and much, much more. The elements of the earth, of water, air, fire, earth element, moving around, changing the environmental conditions of the world that we all have responsibility for, too. The vulnerability of our bodies affected by all of the above. Our bodies and our mental states affected by all of the above. In our meditation training here, in our ever-deepening practice, we are beginning to notice those deep habit patterns, those default settings that we fall back on the different iterations and ways that greed presents itself, the holding on, the reaching out for things that we know aren't going to give us lasting satisfaction, but we still go there over and over again. The patterns of hatred and delusion not seen clearly. The lack of impulse control in our lives and that we see around us. So we begin to understand these have been the underlying causes of this feeling of dis-ease, this feeling of not feeling safe, this feeling of disharmony within ourselves and life in general. And it's so hard to face now that uh, we're all getting quieter. We s- things start to bubble up, things that we haven't felt a- for a long time. Or maybe we haven't felt completely and now they start bubbling up and we're starting to feel them with more depth, with more clarity, with more completeness. We've learned ways with our concentration and our learning of the different methodologies within uh, meditation to come closer, to really be able to touch those places within us with gentleness, to have the sense of like, we can do this. We don't have to keep seeing the same old view of life when we can kind of touch those places and perhaps open to a new view of seeing life differently, which really will help us along the way. I'm just remembering, um, I go to a, a class, an exercise class to keep my heart rate you know, up and um, my muscles and balance going, this conditioning class. And when I walked in one day, I was really not wanting to go in. 
You know, I, I just thought about, oh, you know, my favorite coffee shop is just around the corner. Maybe I could just go there as I was making steps towards a door. And on the outside, there's, there was a chalkboard. And um, my, my Brazilian teacher, uh, exercise teacher, wrote these words. Um, you can do this. So, you know, I just kind of pulled up my socks and said, okay, <laughs> I can do this. So I went in. I wasn't really, you know, up for doing all of that. We have so much time on the, you know, bikes doing spinning and then so much time lifting weights and all that. I'm the oldest one in the class. And um, it, it isn't always easy looking around, you know, at the young ones. But... <laughs> But actually, sometimes I can last, I can outlast them. <laughs> Maybe because they're new, that's why. But when I went inside, there was a sign that said, um, let's see if I can remember. Um, this sign that said something like, there could be a new view of life. You know, if you just let that old view crumble. Like, like the view of, I can't do this, or I can't face this, or I can't open to this vulnerability, or this old wound in my heart that, you know, I keep scratching and keeps bleeding. So, um, basically, the sign said something like, you might be able to see a new view, you know, if you can just get through this. And so I, I looked, uh, somehow I, I looked up exactly what that said, and the picture of that meant a lot more to me than the words. I can't remember the exact words, but the picture of that was an old crumbly wall, if you can picture this, an old crumbly wall. And it was, it was crumbling from the middle, from the top, from all over. You saw kind of, it was barren, rocky land on this side of the, the wall. And there was um, a, um, a ladder going up to the top. And there was this um, person, you know, up, up at the top and looking over to the other side. And the other side was verdant green pastures, blue sky, you know, rainbows, all of that thing. And that I was like, yeah, I've been looking at this old view for a long time, and I can do this. You know, really all it takes is to take the steps I need to take, which we're offering in the Dharma, and look over that wall that's crumbling anyway. So this is my understanding of, of the Dharma, is that this is what we're doing here. You know, we're, we're really looking for that the ability for us to have that balance of compassion and wisdom so that we can see over that wall of delusion, over that wall that's what we might call in the Dharma wrong view, <laughs> seeing the world in a way that isn't in alignment with our highest aspirations. So I want to connect this beautiful quality of compassion with the Four Noble Truths uh, that I mentioned earlier, and particularly the First Noble Truth. So in the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, 
of the Dhamma, the Buddha laid out these four noble truths. And he, sta- he started out with the statement of reality that we're all faced with. This is a reality that we're faced with as human beings. And that reality was a statement of the first noble truth. And I want to say it in Pali because um, it's, it's so much more in Pali the meaning of it is so much more descriptive than in um, in English. The two words in Pali are dukkha, which means suffering, and sacha, which means the truth. So it's only these two words, dukkha, sacha, which means there is the truth of suffering. We start out with that fact. There is a truth of suffering. So the Buddha started there because he was a realist, not a pessimist. He wasn't trying to say, you know, life is suffering, so, you know, what a way to invite anybody to the Dharma anyway. That was kind of wrongly translated for a long time, life is suffering. But the real way of understanding that is there is a truth of suffering. This is where we begin by acknowledging and opening to how it is right now. Us. So when the Dhamma came into my life and I heard this first noble truth, I realized that it met me where I was. Not always trying to reach for a place where somebody that represented some transcendent understanding and beingness in life, where that person or deity was, which that's good too, but I needed. I guess I needed to be acknowledged for where I really was, where I really was starting from. That meant a lot to me. It gave me permission to accept myself in this very life, in what I was born into, in the difficulties that, you know, I'm not different from any one of you. We all have our sufferings in in our own ways, and so I had my own you know, having to endure certain things at a very young age. Like all of you, many of you, if not all of you. And so, um, that gave me the permission to be human. And to say, it's okay to be human. And I didn't have to be feeling unworthy, which, you know, I had interjected into my own uh, personality to be unworthy, to not be good enough. And I learned that truth as a noble truth. As a noble truth. And every time I feel that it's really hard for me in life, and I still feel that. As much as I practice, I still feel that. But I also feel that there is a lot of the times, but not all the time, the commensurate ability to face that degree of suffering. And sometimes it's a steep learning curve. And it works, you know, in in time, giving everything time. So uh, I learned that I could just accept myself and it was okay to be who I am. And I I would say to myself, this is something I would say to myself, um, because of the Four Noble Truths and the First Noble Truth, I would say to myself, Take your noble seat, Kamala. Sometimes I'd be afraid to get up here, you know. 
or even in a small group because of stuff I was going through. And like, who am I to say this, you know? And um, then I would just say to myself, just take your noble seat. And just, you know, sit with your heart out there. You don't have to, you know, be so intellectually um, ordained in the, in the Buddha's teachings. That your heart and opening to the Four Noble Truths and understanding how to get through them is going to get you through. So, um, that carries a vitally important role in my life. You know, that compassion helping us to open to the Four Noble Truths. Compassion is noble. Being tender with ourselves is noble. We are all noble beings that have taken up this path. And so, um, I met a lot of beautiful beings that way. And uh, some were strict and stern, like Seda Upandita. I needed that. Um, and that was part of it. Manindra was a lot of loving kindness, but he also had a lot of uh, deep understanding in the Dharma. And then there were times when who I reported to, like in Burma, when I would report to teachers. Sometimes I wouldn't always report to the one teacher there, Seda Upandita. There were others uh, who kind of tracked me along in my practice and knew through the years how my practice was unfolding. And one of them that I, I don't often mention except for recently is this one elder monk, Bilin Seidao, who they call him Bilin Seidao. Seidao means spiritual teacher, Bilin, because he came from that town, that area of Burma, Myanmar. And so um, he was a very, very kind person, but very, I knew he was very deep, very learned. He actually took Seidao Pandita's place in overseeing everything uh, when Seidao Ji. Uh, Upandita died a few years ago. So I went to um, report to him one time. And, you know, he was very learned. But at that time, he had known a lot of what I had gone through, what a, a lot I had to endure in the Dharma, though he was at the sidelines. And when I told him about what I was going through at that time, how there was a, like a lot of burning going on as in the body and in the mind, and maybe I could look back now and say, you know, it was just like burning a lot of unwholesome, uh, uprooting some unwholesome roots or trying at least to do that. And he didn't say much to me. He just, at that time when I went to him, he just had the tenderest eyes um, on me. Actually, Upandita would too, but his words would be very strict. But Bilin Seidao just said, when I was telling him about, it's very difficult to get through this. It feels like my whole body's burning. The insides are burning. Everything's burning. And he said, that's how it is, isn't it? That's just about it. He said, that's how it is, isn't it? And he also said the usual, just please continue to be mindful. <laughs> that, you know, they just said that all the time. But, you know, 
please continue to be mindful um, in different ways. But sometimes I, I just learn from that that sometimes the gift of compassion is simply bearing witness to someone's pain. And we're doing that now, you know, in our lives. I just want to bring a little bit of, you know, community and society in um, to it because what we need to do these days is to listen to the pain of the ones who have been disenfranchised and dismissed. It's a time to listen to that. It's a time to just bear witness and have compassion for all of that. It's not a time to say, this is what I can do. Oh, maybe we can do that, of course. But just having someone bear witness to the pain is such a healing. And it's not just... um, It's members of all society in some ways. You know, individuals who are wounded cultural groups uh, that are wounded, gender groups that feel not seen, uh, not feeling a part of. It's really hard. It's really hard to be in that. So I have my own um, experiences through that too and I know how hard it is. So when someone just bears witness to the pain, it's, it's really very deep compassion. It's a great gift that we can give. So as part of the, that, I'd like to, and part of our breaking open to what's going on in ourselves and in others, um, being able to bear witness to it, like to read this from Khalil Gibran. It speaks to that. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding, even as a stone of the fruit must break open, that its heart may stand in the sun, so you must know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So it's this kind of wondrous miracle of how that naturalness of that first noble truth is arising in our lives and more deeply here. And the wondrousness of bringing compassion to that bringing that soft-hearted ability to just be with it, to just touch it even for a moment, and to use all those ways, those skillful means that each one of us has been offering to you uh, in your practice. There's different ways, you know, when it's so hard, maybe go to a place of safety in, in your body, or maybe, you know, it's hearing That's a place of safety. It's pretty neutral most of the time. Go to a place of neutrality, of safety. Even our grandfather teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, the the teacher of all these lineages that we've all come from, um, said when it gets really difficult, there's a place in in the very beginning of his teachings um, 
to open your eyes, to actually open your eyes. And that makes a bigger container for all of this difficulty to come into, so you're not in a pressure cooker. But it's also touch base with something on the relative level. You know, just see the the Buddha Rupa here, um, the the uh, Kuan Yin here, the whatever whatever the lights, the person sitting up here, just touching base with that, feeling a sense of safety, or bringing that with you, your sense of safety in your heart. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's Mohammed. Maybe it's the Blessed Virgin Mary um, that I feel so close to, you know, still from a Catholic background. Any way it is for you to bring that, you know, bring a touching base with that place of safety so you can open, go back and maybe open to that place that's really difficult. One time when it was really hard, um, when I went to Upandita and I was uh, actually trying to get away from it all the time. So not to have to go to the place of safety and just stay there, but I was really trying to go away from it all the time. He said, he reminded me to uh, touch that place that hurts, you know, touch that defilement that's coming up, to really be there with it. So we have this thing in in our particular lineage that's called connecting and sustaining. There's Pali words for it too, but it's, it's a part of concentration practice. It's also a part of insight practice where you're able to, whatever is difficult within, or maybe something on going on outside of you, but usually something coming up inside of you, can you touch it? Can you just, if this is awareness and this is like anger, can you just touch it for a moment? Connect and sustain your attention on that. This is a really important part of practice. We can't just hang out all here, here all the time because this allows us to be able to see some of that um, unique nature of that, what's going on there, without making a sense of self out of it. So that part is to be explained more later. But um, it's, it's helpful for, for us to really connect with it because we're able to see either the impersonal, the um, dukkha nature of it, or the, or the um, impermanent nature of it. And that helps us to let go. So he encouraged me, just touch it for a moment. Don't always just go back to your breath, which was a safe place for me, but to really go there. And actually, he used this term. He said, rub your attention on it. If this is awareness and this is the object or what is what awareness is being aware of, to actually connect and sustain. Rub your attention on it. That was very helpful for me because I was just hanging out all the time, trying to get away from it. So it was very helpful for me to go closer to it and to realize I can do this, or this can be done. So it's said that compassion is described as this basic goodness of metta, this unconditional kindness that can turn towards what's difficult. 
So when metta turns to suffering, the aspect of compassion comes out of that. When metta turns to joy, the aspect of uh, sympathetic joy comes out of that. And when metta turns to um, both the joys and sorrows of life, both of them, the aspect of equanimity, which is this spacious uh, balance, can come out of that. So here in Compassion, it's talking about how we can have this unconditional kindness to suffering, wherever that's happening, in ourselves here, that's what we're learning about, or with others in the world. It's called the quivering of the heart that can open to it, to whatever's going on. That's how compassion is described, the quivering of the heart. And I notice that quivering, what that's all about is um, getting in touch with that energy that's able to face what's happening. Getting in touch with that kind of energy that is able to not just feel the suffering, not just open to it, and not just go towards it, but do something about it. So it's said that compassion is not complete unless we really do something about the suffering. And maybe it's just listening, bearing witness. And maybe it's a decision right in that point to do nothing because we need to wait until we're free of that kind of anger that can push people away. We need the energy of that, what can come from anger. But sometimes it can push people away, so maybe we wait. I love what Agnes Au, a Buddhist teacher in the Srambhala tradition, wrote about what this path is all about. And... um, This person wrote, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in doing so to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. Unfiltered life means to see life without filters, to see clearly the first noble truth, to be able to face it, to go towards it, to be with it. And eventually, as we're going to go into the next, in the next two weeks, is to be able to understand experientially what this impersonal nature is, what this impermanent nature of this impersonal self is, and what this um, unsatisfactory nature is that helps us to realize that unsatisfactory nature so that we're not always hanging on to what goes away. So we learn to face what is going on in this inner terrain that has been previously unchecked or maybe not so aware of or hidden because of our busyness in life. Feelings and states of mind we haven't acknowledged because if it, if it comes up hard, then let's get busy. Or you know, even let's get busy just reading about the Dharma. What, how about practicing the Dharma? At one of my first long retreats, I was reading this experience of insight, a natural unfolding, about 30 days in retreat. And the teacher caught me reading the book. And the teacher said, you are in this retreat. Why are you reading about it? (laughs) You know, basically, why don't you read your own heart? So that's what we're here to do.
reading our own hearts because like His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourself, you will still be, uh, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Because until you can feel how the other one in a similar situation that you might, uh, you know, a parallel situation you might feel yourself into. You know, I've, I've gone through this myself with my own children, with people in my life. I never really knew how that person felt until I went through a similar experience. And then I just was, whoa, you know, just felt so sorry. But that was as much as I could do at that time. When I was going through something really so hard to bear, even with all my practice, I came across this writing by Mark Nepple, a poet and writer. Probably many of you know of this person. He went through his own deep challenges and journeyed through health and relationship challenges that were hard to bear. And I read this um, um, part of his writing that helped me to um, just see things a little bit differently, but it was just a little shift in my seeing things that helped me to bear up with what was going on. So this is what was written by him. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of all this pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So we get a sense that, you know, we're shining that pearl in our time here together. And over the years, I've become more tender about things and realize that that tenderness is a, is a part of my wisdom understanding, that I need that tenderness to open to what's harsh in me and in life. Harsh in me because the harshness of fear, of not wanting to face things, the harshness of uh, turning away from, of avoiding. So, this is the, these are the threads, the terrain, the ecology of our inner and outer life. How can we, how can we face this life? These, um, vulnerabilities that we feel in ourselves and others. I like to translate that first, uh, there is a truth of suffering, sometimes says there is a truth of vulnerability. Because that's how, sometimes it doesn't feel like suffering per se, like, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's just like I'm in agony, but it feels more like there's so much vulnerability in, in me and my life. But I'm learning that that vulnerability can be strong, too. That it can face things as they are. So I'd like to end with this beautiful um, poem by Donna Markova. And she wrote, wrote this in her book, I Will Not Die an Unlived Life. 
I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing, a torch, and a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as a seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes on as fruit. So let's sit for a few moments and let those words disappear. Just being with yourselves. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So we have about 30 minutes now to um, do some walking, whatever you need to do for opening your petals (laughs) and being back here for the last chanting and sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.